fade in interior screenplay podcast day. Welcome to the first 10 pages where I, David Ferrier, hello, and uh, co-host, screenwriter Keir Wilkins, talk to guests about their careers and their favorite screenplay with an emphasis on the part that must hook the reader the first 10 pages. On today's show, The West Wing Pilot with screenwriter Jess Payne, a really, really terrific guest who is now a screenwriter working here in Australia, but you will hear coming up, she once portrayed a very famous costumed character on Australian TV. If you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, give us those five stars, and get in touch if you like, first10pod on socials. Here we go. Let's walk and talk about The West Wing. are recording, so I might just get underway. Jess Payne, welcome to the show. Why have you chosen The West Wing? Thanks so much for having me. Um, I chose The West Wing for a couple of reasons. The first one being it's just, for me, it was a really seminal show and a seminal launch into a show that really kind of got me excited about being a screenwriter in lots of ways. It's it's different. It felt different at the time when I watched it and it, it, you read it and it's so talky and straight in there and it doesn't let up and it's not a procedural in, and it comes from an era where there was a lot of those. So it just, it was really energising and exciting at the time. Um, flawed now. There are some there are some stuff, there's some things now and in the script as a whole and in the show as a whole and, you know, and Aaron Sorkin as a whole. But uh, but certainly I just at the time what it meant and I think what it probably has done for TV in terms of like TV shows and what you could do without it being without it being a crime show essentially or anything like that was really exciting at the time. And, um, yeah. Yeah, I think people, I think so many people forget that it's, um, you know, it gets lumped in with Sopranos and Breaking Bad and Oz and all of those kind of huge shows at the time. But people forget that this was network television. Like, it was it was not on cable where you had, like, free reign to do whatever you want. This really pushed the boundaries of what could happen on network TV. About the least sexiest topic possible, like, as well. Like, you, the shows you're listing are about mafia, about death, are about, like, sexiness, and this is, like, let's go make a law. Like, we're, like, <laughs> spelling that. Like, and yet it was thrilling. I mean, it helps when you go and they will all look like models, I'm sure, but it's it's a hard sell, and that's a testament, first and foremost, to the writing um, that you can care and understand about such a deeply dry topic half the time. And Sorkin also has this effect with his writing where he just, when he brings you along, I think everyone I know who enjoys Sorkin also enjoys feeling a bit smarter, yeah, like they're right. like they're in on it. Totally, yes. yeah, it, yeah. He he does have a great way of bringing you along. Like so much of the West Wing, I remember first watching through when, however old I was at that point, um, a lot of it was going over my head, and you're just trying to keep up. But then it'll be like thing you don't understand, thing you don't understand, thing you don't understand, smarmy joke, and you're like, well, I got the smarmy joke, so I'm still with it. <laughs> I didn't understand that policy stuff, but. <laughs> Yeah, I'm basically as good as them. I got the, I got the, yeah, the laugh, the laugh line. But also, it, yeah. it's a show that does like slow mm. down occasionally and spell things out sometimes to its detriment. But you do like they drop you in things, and certainly this first ten pages drops you in, 
and then you kind of have this, you feel like you're in safe hands and it will unfold and it will give you enough information to put things together. It just treats the audience like they're not idiots as well, which is pleasant. So, Jess, you started, you're a screenwriter now, but you started in breakfast TV. What were you doing in breakfast TV and how did you go from there to screenwriting? Um, look, I did that classical thing that I think a lot of people do coming out of high school where they go, I don't know that I could ever make a living in screenwriting. I'll be a journalist. There's lots of money there, which, you know, everyone can chuckle ruefully at now, but it was in an innocent time. It's on the um, up journalism, specifically yeah. print journalism. Print journalism, that's where the future is. <laughs> um, <laughs> unless you have ink on your hands, you're not a journalist. Um, so I sort of studied journalism and found myself in breakfast TV. I, I sort of did the full matrix of, of, well, the sort of the two networks that do it, Seven and Nine, so Sunrise and Today Show and a bit of Kerry ann and, and, um, and I was a early producer often, so especially on Sunrise, I was sort of doing 3 a.m. starts, which is um, demoralising and vampire-like. But, you know, living that life was also strange and inspiring because, you know, you watch Smash and Grabs in Prada stores on Martin Place or you run through Martin Place wearing a cow suit. A lot of it involves Martin Place. Somewhere. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> um, sorry, I have to interject. Were you ever the cash cow? Um, I mean, it's. I feel like it's like a state seat. Are you not? At, are you not at liberty to disclose? <laughs> you have a special code. There's a special sign off. You do. It's a, it's a special sort of sisterhood, brotherhood, family. Look, there was an era where cash cow was whoever was available to get into the suit <laughs> at that time, and it was really important to look busy right around the time when you knew a cash cow playoff was coming up. Because <laughs> you, you just you did not want that suit had been worn by a lot of really hardworking, yeah. uh, God bless them, sweaty men. Yeah. Um, um, you who are in the crew, and every now and then you'd turn around and go, oh, God, it's me. Oh, God, it's me. Since then, they have hired a professional. <laughs> Cash Cow is, you know, it's a state secret who that person is, but it's, it, there was an era where it was a much more a shared burden. Someone is a, is the full-time Cash Cow. I can't believe that. That's amazing. <laughs> and when you say hired a professional, are we talking like NIDA-trained actor? A cow. Actor? They a professional hired cow. a cow. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's so. That I mean, they don't have to put up with that at uh, ABC News Breakfast. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think that they are probably poorer as journalists for it because I think that's where you really, you know, you get up there, you pound the pavement, you find the stories, um, and you get yeah, sort of mildly humiliated, but with a mask on. It's basically it predates the masked singer and the masked dancer in terms of yeah, ah, the, the talents so you can pull from that. Um, but yeah, so I, I did that. Uh, and various weird iterations of that and sort of as, you know, anyone who's watched a lot of breakfast TV would tell you it's a it's a weird space. It's You do lots of nutty things. It's a weird workplace and morning TV is similar and, and after a while, like, kind of it, it started to go, well, I could work with these fictional characters <laughs> or I could make up some of my own. Um, <laughs> so I, I, you know, the idea of being a screenwriter had always been my passion. I'd certainly been trying my hand at it all since university um but really taking the choice after about five or six years of that to redirect and start from the bottom up was as it was was tough but I went to afters um and kind of did the full retraining because it sort of it was necessary because because contrary to what people think they're the different types of tv they're not the skills aren't necessarily transferable like if you can write online if you can if you can write for koshi <laughs> that 
um, you know, that doesn't mean you can necessarily uh, write for Alf because um, they're very different characters. Um, <laughs> Alf's not as funny. One says Struth a lot more. Uh, what were you were you still working while you were going through afters? Yeah, I mean, it was. I was very fortunate. I look back on that shift of going into screenwriting and think, well, if I'd done it when I was 18, 19, I don't think I'd have anything to say. So along with being a bit older and a bit more mature, I had a career and I could keep doing shift work. So I just, I worked full-time essentially while studying full-time. But fortunately, the crazy hours actually were useful at that point. Um, The vampire life became complete. I just didn't sleep for a while. Um, and that helped me in terms of at the other end of afters when you're trying to get into writer's rooms. It's That's a lot of pitching yourself to work for free, and so that's a lot of picking up other shifts and other bits and pieces to keep, you know, the roof over your head while, you're, while you are getting excellent at collecting coffee, um, which is <laughs> which is what you do with, when, you, when you're coming back around you're trying to get into a new sort of industry that way. So what was the first gig post uh, film school. Did, did you go straight into kind of the soap world or were you doing? No, so I, I, I mean, I mean, the sort of, I feel like I've done it the long way, but also every stage of it, I can retrospectively go, oh, wow, I learned a lot through that. But I, I came in note taking um, and note taking at wherever would have me. So you, you sort of note taking is when you are uh, the sort of, you actually, and I say this to everyone who's note taken in a room since for me, you're the hardest working person in the room and you're getting paid the least. And I'm so sorry, but thank you. And I'm sorry for the RSI you will inevitably get because you're sort of, I apologise if you can hear a dog, by the way. That's Freddie, my neighbour. He just has great comic timing. Um, <laughs> your neighbour's a dog? Yeah. Jealous. <laughs> Could be my housemate. I don't know. Um, uh, but uh, so I did note-taking on sort of shows, uh, Matchbox, Playmaker, like really early love child note-taking, uh, Gallipoli, what was, became Deadline Gallipoli, um, a few shows like that, really sort of sitting in rooms surrounded by incredibly experienced writers, um, taking down everything they say and hearing them nut through the process of story, which was incredibly educational because, and you don't even realise what you're learning until you kind of are in your own space doing it and you and you, and you feel the, the, the sort of the muscle and the shape of what they're talking about and you can apply it to your own work. But so I did a lot of that, a bit of research work, um, and then moved into from that script coordinating. So I script coordinated on Wonderland, the second season of that, the last, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, the last Australian show to like run for like a 22-episode season. Could well be, yeah. Um, which was fortunate. Once again, I, there was, a you know, I feel lucky timing-wise that I got in on a show that was essentially a year-long gig um, and that was great because you're in a department of a show in production which is once again a different set of skills and you're watching the waves of notes come in from the various different stakeholders and the different production heads department heads coming in with their tasks so I was um under Sarah Walker who was running that which was also massively educational um, as you can attest Keir she's like she knows her stuff she's been on the show yep yep Yoda of screenwriting in Australia as far as I'm concerned um, and from there, I script coordinated on Clever Man and then first season, uh, and then ended up uh, interviewing for a trainee spot at Neighbours. So it was, it's, it's been a very, yeah, it was, a, it was a couple of years, it was probably 
two years from graduating at AFTAS before I got anywhere near neighbours of sort of in the wilderness, which is a really tough time, I think, for a lot of people. When you decide to become a writer, it's one thing to train, but it's a really half nut, hard nut to crack to actually find that wedge where you can shove your foot through the door. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's uh, something I love about doing this show and talking to everyone is just everyone has had such a different way to to arrive at the place where they get finally get to write the thing um there is just no one way to go about it and so much of it is about luck and timing and you know sarah walker who you mentioned is for me was like a real sort of guardian angel in that way and i think that's another big aspect to it is that it so often it takes someone who is very experienced to vouch for you or take you under their wing or take a shine to you and go i'm i'm gonna you know, be your guarantor, I'll shove you in front of a producer and say, give this person a chance. And if you fuck it up, then, you know, they can come to me and I'll fix the problem. So you need someone to basically be insurance for you, for someone to give you that first shot. Exactly, exactly. And it's it's the mentorship because it's like, it's such a weird, it's not like you've become a doctor. And so you can list out what you'll be doing for the next 10 years in order to become a doctor or something. It's, there are many winding paths and way, and as you say, everyone has a different way in. So it's that mentorship and it's, that's the perfect analogy. It's, it's going guarantor on the home loan that is your, you know, actual ability to, to turn in a script or, or do the work. Um, it's someone vouching for you is is vital and it's such a small industry that relationships and kind of not just learning from people but the opportunity people viewing you as someone that they want to be in a room with in the future is is so important to kind of keep moving forward and 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 hearing about things and getting opportunities yeah i think as well like I always remember the people doing those note-taking gigs, which, as you say, are thankless and you're busting your ass, and, but really your job is to shut up and just make sure you're getting everything down. And I always just really appreciated the people, you know, and, the, and, and they're quite often the most successful people, which I, I think tells you something, but the people who turn to the note-taker and go, what do you reckon about this? Like, you've got a brain, what's... and like, I'm so grateful to those people. You mentioned Matchbox before, like Tony Ayres was always one of those people for me who was just like, don't feel like you have to sit there silently, like contribute if you've got something to say. And I think those people will attract the best people because they are so generous with their talent and with their time. Um, yeah. And just as a note taker, I always, always cling on to those memories of the people that, you know, were nice, basically. Because it's, I mean, being a writer, especially, I mean, I don't, I haven't exited this, this, this yet, but it is a long period of feeling like a fraud with occasional reassurance. Um, <laughs> that's what it is. You just, you spend the whole time going, I'm a fraud, I'm a fraud, I'm a fraud, I'm a fraud. Oh, maybe not. Like just above water, like someone says something nice to you, you kind of go, oh, oh, thank you. And then that, that feeds you for a year, basically, in terms of your capacity to, to keep pushing on and soldering on in an industry that's sort of built percentage-wise on a lot of rejection. Um, so, yeah, you're right. When someone turns to you and goes, you're an adult in respect, it's empowering you to talk. It's it's also just showing you how to treat other people and kind of coming up that way is maybe just you've got to respect all the people coming through all those rungs because their perspective is different and what they're bringing is different. And the more, you know, TV, TV writing or all writing is a weird solo sport, but it's actually collaborative and kind of reminding yourself that other ideas and criticism, you know, getting past, and I don't know, Kia, you probably 
found this too, afters was the stage where you had to get past the shame of someone reading your stuff um, and the mortification of anyone like looking you in the eye after they've read something you've written. And it's like, oh, you just read a tiny part of my soul. Do you <laughs> like me? Um, vibe. Um, so it's it's just, it's such a community. It's a community vibe. I think it has to be, um, which, is, which is lovely because you do spend a lot of time sitting at home alone, staring off vaguely into space. I love your summary of uh, those little moments where you get a hint <laughs> that you might be on the right path. Because I, I feel like that's a, a good summary for any pursuit that it does not have a laid out path. It is suffering and anxiety and imposter syndrome with those little, little flags that occasionally pop up to show that you might be um, on the right path and you might be heading in at least the right direction. It's the most you can hope for. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. And so you've had you've had um, a lot of success with screenwriting competitions, which I'm very curious about. What what's your opinion on uh, those on on writing competitions? Yeah. So and and this probably it's good to sort of present it as I I had when I kind of looked at this industry as a whole and tried to gather information about how to get in. I came at it. There's a two prong attack, and the two prongs are. You've got to get in and you've got to work on other people's stuff in any format they will let you, which will often be note-taking or whatever and working your way up. And But you cannot lose what you got into writing to begin with, which is writing your own stuff. And for me, if nothing else, competitions created deadlines that I could work towards um, and really forced me to stay honest with the fact I didn't be... I like working on other people's things is how you learn. It's collaborative. It's amazing. But when you first decide to become a writer, it's it's to write your own things. And I think it can be easy to lose track of doing that. So competitions, first and foremost, were about creating deadlines for myself that were self-imposed. Um, and then from that, I found the act of forcing myself to keep writing things meant I perpetually had up-to-date writing samples because you get into conversations with people and if they like you and they think you don't seem entirely mad, present them with a writing sample when they ask for it. You don't have to say, give me three months, I'll be right back. Um, so so those are like those are actually there is a there for me, first and foremost, the competitions really <laughs> provided a methodology so you were ready, you were match fit on sort of that two-prong phase. And then in terms of the competitions themselves, I, my opinion is, firstly, that they're just useful for that deadline. Um, there are lots of competitions. There are so many online. And you sort of, there's people, though, have done the really good little sub-lists about these are the competitions that are kind of, that people, you know, if you get, if you do well in this, you can reference it and people will know what you've entered. But competitions are, are a way to to meet new people, even if it's, you know, other writers and peers, to sort of see what kind of ideas are floating around, to push yourself and to sometimes you get feedback as well, depending on the competition you enter. And often, you know, the things that I have managed to get further in, sometimes the prizes have been more like sort of like a, like a trip to LA or, 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 or a sort of a bit of a fellowship or things like that, that then it's, it's not about a prize, it's about expanding that network it's about meeting people and getting a handle on this really vaguely defined industry um, and kind of trying to get sort of de-smudge more of the window into how the whole thing works how the sausage is made um, and sort of seeing the spots in it where you might find you can you can fit in so so competitions sort of 
are just an access point for that for me. It's it's um, but it, but but yeah, they, they themselves are you know just another form of rejection you're signing up for. So you've got to be willing. <laughs> really specific question: Where do you find out about competitions? Really specific answer. So there's this really th- there's this t- thing. It's it's totally a fad. I'm not sure it'll take off. It's called Google. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that's such a dickhead response. But that is literally what like when like, that's what you did. Yeah, you can Google best if you Google best screenwriting competitions. Some people have created some lists, and you can go through. And in those lists, they they've done the work for you. They've really shortcut it. So they provide you with links to the to the competitions. They'll often provide you with a little summary of like whether it's global, who reads it, who has gotten work out of it. They provide, you know, and those competitions are selling themselves um, and they talk about the fees, you know, that sometimes you have to pay to, to enter. Um, there's also, there's a couple of uh, sites, uh, We Screenplay and Coverfly, which kind of collate competitions. And if you register with them, you can kind of keep across them um, and that way and upload your script so you're ready to just press submit on competitions that you see. And so, you know, if you wanted to just go for a, like a bit more of a scattergun approach, you could you could put in for every script sort of free or under $50 competition you find. Um, we Screenplay is uh-huh. one of the ones, and I think Blue Cat is also one of the ones that do provide feedback, which are really interesting to get an anonymous person read your script. It's super confronting. Anonymous person reads your script and basically, you know, puts the boot in, which is useful sometimes because everyone that reads your stuff often knows you really well. But someone who has no idea who you are reading your stuff for the first time can just say, oh, is this a comedy? Um, which yeah. <laughs> but then don't you that have you ever read that feedback and thought well who are you 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 don't yeah. like why would i take yeah. your feedback yeah absolutely i and in, in it's sort of that's that's what's confronting about reading feedback is and you and it's like when anyone gives you notes you kind of also need to go um to what extent do i take this on board and to what extent is this wanting the the project to be not what it is you know, I've I've written a project which was, which is uh, sort of meant to be a bit of a farce satire, and someone came in saying, "Oh, but you know, the rom com elements. They just think they should end up together at the end." And I'm like, "Well, it's not a rom com, so that's okay. I I won't take that on board because that's not. I've obviously not made it clear. The note is actually make it clearer. It is what it is. Not do sure. whatever you say. Sure. Um, and sometimes, look, you get feedback where you go." Oh, I just don't think you read all this script. <laughs> <laughs> and you so you just got to make sure your first response isn't, "Oh, fuck off." Yeah, <laughs> it's perfect. I'm a genius. My mum said so. Um, so it's, you've got to you've got to find that that equilibrium in terms of how you take that feedback. It's actually a it's a, quite a good segue into the West Wing because when I was reading this pilot, I you know such a fan of the show you can't help but hear the characters' voices and you can't help but read it in that very Sorkin style. And I was trying to, like, pull myself out of it and go, okay, if this just... If I had no context for this, if I had never seen the show that it became, how would this read? And and that's a very hard thing to do, but it's kind of what you're saying with these competitions, getting anonymous feedback like that. They have nothing to inform them that, like, you have a dry wit or this, you know, that you write in a particular style that it, they're going to suddenly know which voice to read this screenplay in. Um, and that's, like, a really interesting challenge on the page. How do you simultaneously as tell someone a story, teach them how to read your work? This is I one of the, one of the more confronting um, a sort of tasks I think we ever did at afters 
was we sort of had to write like a three-page scene and then we just had to sit silently and hand it to one of the director students and sit silently in the corner and watch them work through it with two actors and completely misinterpret what I'd said. (laughs) (laughs) Nightmare. (laughs) Nightmare. (laughs) But the lesson wasn't, you know, they're idiots, you're a genius, your mother says so, and I will keep reiterating that because she keeps telling me. But it's... it's, um, You can't get it somewhere for your affirmations. Um, but it's, it was also a, the lesson was not, you, you should not writing shot of this close up of that. They are angry. It's the, the, there's a craft and it's hard to edge towards and it's hard to articulate. You have to trick everyone into seeing it the way you see it and then have them all think it was their idea. <laughs> um, and that's sort of like the sort of like, like make it clear through big print what there should be a close up of without saying there's a close up of this. Just pay attention. It's a MacGuffin. We'll come back to it. And he doesn't use even a lot of parentheses in terms of tone. He uses them for beat and pause. But it's you know he underlines a few words in dialogue. But there's actually not a massive amount there, um, which is really interesting because then you look at the cast and the characters are so rich. Um, and I think the cast is actually how they found a lot of the tone of some of these characters and stopped them from being smarmy mm. dickheads. Because, you know, ideally, if someone reads a script, they would they would get the tone quite explicitly. But it's, it's, it's a really tricky thing to pull off. I wonder how much of that comes from him being a playwright as, as his background, that it's all, you know, he's much more interested in telling the story through dialogue and through rhythm and pause and you know using those parentheses as you say as beats and and punctuation more than he is in you know specifically describing what anyone is doing at any given moment that's that's why i got really i think excited about the show to begin with because it was a show that was so dialogue driven and i um and i know a lot of writers feel this way love dialogue and we constantly get told you know show don't tell and i'm like oh but i could tell you as well um so it's sort of really um it was thrilling to have so much dialogue um, and have it not feel like it was over-explaining or over-expositing stuff because there was a lot of foreign things you had to get your head around and they really dropped you into it. But it's um, it's it's interesting because I think he... I'm sorry, I've completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> That's all right. Aaron Sorkin, very smart guy, was, was, the, Sorkin, was the point. Well, but I, I think he does get criticised as well, and potentially rightly so, that all these characters sound the same. Um, and that, you know, so it sort of it goes the other way. And I, I think even in the first 10 pages of this, like you can see he's not like, yeah. like have, having watched The West Wing a couple of times over from start to finish as a giant nerd, I'm a Sorkin completionist. And let me say not a lot of it's good after West Wing um, in terms of TV, but he he was figuring out the characters i think even in this episode this pilot episode who in particular the sam seaborn character is actually kind of becomes apparent about episode six of the first season mm. and that's a you know in going tv versus film and i was very torn when you guys asked me to pick it was a real crisis um <laughs> i think it was a very strange delay when i was like i didn't reply for 48 hours and it must have felt a little bit like i was like i'd forgotten and like who knew phone who dissed you <laughs> but um I was really torn because there are so many great, I think, complete, beautiful, unflawed opening features, 10 pages, and I think most of the TV shows I love didn't necessarily nail the 10 pages. So it's sort of that's why I'm kind of drawn to the Sorkin script for its flaws as well as its strengths because it's sort of he's got a way he likes to do things. I don't think he takes notes too well. 
We are talking about the West Wing pilot uh, written by Aaron Sorkin. Final draft, February 6, 1998. There is a lot of trivia around the series as a whole, but uh, Kia and I, before we started recording, we're, were talking about it's been so well covered elsewhere, so we won't, don't need to spend too much time on it, but um, just the basics that the idea came following the American president, uh, which he wrote and thought it would be neat to follow, uh, have a series following the senior staffers of uh, the president's staff. president originally wasn't supposed to be a major character, uh, and certainly we see that in this pilot episode, but and then as the series uh, carries on, they realise that you can't have Martin Sheen in a show playing such a great role and not well, I'd heard that previously um, yeah, any, that... You know, just the overall you know, trivia... Rob Lowe overall famously just left the show. And, about uh, this pilot episode. Apparently, that was... A, a big part of that was that he was originally pitched a series in which he would be the lead. Uh, and then as the, as the show evolved, it became apparent that Sam Seaborn was not the best character in this show and not the person to centre it around. And, and that was a, an issue for Rob Lowe. And I think knowing that and now going back and reading the pilot... You can see that DNA in there that this is sort of set up to be the Sam Seaborn show, but and you can even feel it in the first ten pages. You're like, oh, but I'm kind of more interested in this guy. Who's this guy? Um, so yeah, I think that's really interesting to see how you can write a pilot that you know you have a very different vision for what the series is, and, and it organically involves as soon as you've got cast in, and as soon as you're seeing who sparks off who, and what the audience is actually gravitating towards, and you have to sometimes adjust what your what your intentions were. It's interesting in that respect because. You know, Sorkin famously wrote Ooh. pretty much every episode when he was connected to the show, um, except for like a couple. 88, I believe. Yeah. An obscene Especially amount Especially when you consider the first year he was television. concurrently doing the same thing on Sports Night, which is also insane. But he famously also wasn't a planner. Um, it was rare for him to really get too far ahead in story terms. He didn't. I, my understanding of the show and, and, and the nerding out over it, I, you know, I feel like we have all done probably in our own time, is that, um, you know, it wasn't probably a writer's room as we as, as we modernly know it, where you sit around and you, you plan a season, you break a bit of a season, the arcs. And often with, with Sorkin, and I think it kind of, it, it's a blessing and a curse, he was playing catch up and getting excited about ideas and characters that were working and not working as they, as they came along. And that made the show incredibly flexible and malleable and it could it could lean into its strengths. It could go, hey, that, that Martin Sheen kid, he's got promise. Um, but it also sometimes you feel the lack of planning. So you've got these first ten pages, as is often the case with a pilot show, where they're just figuring it out. But the strength in it is the voice is so clear the voice of the writer, even if it's not quite the voice of the characters yet and the sort of focus of the story, the voice of the writer <laughs> is so crystal clear straight away. Um, and I find that oddly reassuring in both viewing and reading form. You feel like, oh, I'm in the hands of a person who knows what they want to do with this. Uh, you just mentioned what the writer's room might have been like and that it might not have operated as you uh, as other writer's room rooms do. I've actually, I don't know if you've watched the, Aaron Sorkin did a masterclass, one of those masterclass series, and one of the later episodes 
is he runs a writer's room with some young writers for the opening act, the cold open of season five, episode one, because he has never watched the show after he was uh, he left. <laughs> so he has no idea what they did. He knows where he finished season four. So what would his opening, um, uh, a cold open of season five, episode one, what would that be like? And you see him, he talks about it and they, they break the cold open. It's really interesting. It's really very was good. Was it? I mean, um, obviously, there, were, there was no, no notion of going away and writing it at the end, which is the part no. where, where, where Sorkin really stepped away from the traditional formula of actually letting other people have a, have a crack at it. Um, but that that's, I'm, I should be watching that. I've, I've let myself down. I've brought shame upon my family. <laughs> um, so that's a yeah might be a bit of an insight into what uh, a Sorkin writer's room might have been like but uh, as you have noted Kia uh, back in those days famously coked up for a lot of the series well yeah just when you were saying Jess that he was concurrently writing two series in which he was writing the bulk of it I was like uh yeah now that's <laughs> all clicking into place for me. Of course he needed to have a serious coke addiction to manage just that. Sunshine and water was all he needed, Kier. Like, I don't know, he's just really well hydrated. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's yeah. what I took away from that, obviously. That's the key. Yeah, I, um, think I should drink more water. <laughs> I think his strength and, you know, his, it's why it's sort of you can look at 10 pages of his and it can be quite, like, alluring. His strength is in scenes rather than in, than yeah. in plot. Um, I don't know that he necessarily is great at the sort of big structural arcs. His strength is in, in those in those beautifully constructed scenes with the rhythms of the dialogue and the back and forth and sort of usually some sort of payoff at the end of the scene and some sort of punchy out. Um, and that's that's like his individual scene craft is superb and then his plot stuff can be a little bit more, um, I guess, hit and miss is, is one way to describe it. I mean, I feel like... It's. I can't tell if it's him getting. It's not him getting bored, but it's him getting a bit mm-hmm. lost uh, in the grander arc of TV. Whereas in a feature film, he gets to focus very specifically um, and really kind of tell a whole story. Um, but yeah, in, in in long arc television, it's it's a marathon and it's really hard. And that's why you need a room and that's why you need other people to keep you honest and sort of push back and and really be empowered to push. And I don't know that he always has had that in all of his projects. Mm. That's a really interesting observation about his scenes being better than his overall arcs. I've never thought about that, but I think you're bang on. Well, I wonder if that's why he's moved more towards uh, real-life events because the plot is sort of built in already. He knows what has to happen. He's, he's certainly... I, it's it's interesting because obviously he did that with Newsroom as well, but like a fictionalised reportage of real-life events as a, as, a, as a structure to hang it on. And I feel like he's a man who has a lot of opinions about stuff that's happening in the news. And instead of using the internet, mm. he uses a, a, a large budget and a full film crew. And he tells you exactly what he thinks of the real events now. Um, and I, he can, he's, he's definitely got sort of his motifs in those, those real life stories. He loves a court proceeding. Uh, he loves a voiceover narration or someone sitting in a court proceeding narrating. That's always fun. Um, and he always, always, someone has a daughter. Um, or a child that can look at them sadly or that has some sort of issue with their father. Um, he does have recurring things, but it's like those have all popped up, I think, in the last 10 years. And before that, West Wing was genuinely based on research and he had a whole staff of people who actually just worked in 
in Washington coming in with their expertise and offering up insane stories and they were sort of much more heavily fictionalised to suit him. So he's, but you're right, there's, a, there's sort of almost the, the safety of the structure of a, of a known story with known qualities and known characters, sort of like Molly's Game and, and mm. obviously the trial of the Chicago 7. So the first 10 pages of the pilot script is the teaser plus a little bit of Act 1. And I commented to Keir before we started that um, it's amazing that really you could sort of get the hook. It happens, the cold open happens in five pages. And a lot happens in that first five pages. We meet Sam Seaborn, we meet CJ, we meet Leo. And the uh, the hook of the POTUS bike accident all takes place within five pages, which I feel like for Aaron Sorkin is quite an achievement. It is. And he introduces a lot of story. Like he introduces, I think, all three through through the episode and he gets four of them in very quickly as well in terms of you've got, not, and you don't necessarily understand the context of everything you're hearing, but you're being introduced to the ideas. So Josh's job is at risk. We don't necessarily know why. Um, you have sort of the bike accident and this sort of as this comedic runner, yeah. which will have a bit of a punch, obviously, at the end of the episode. You get introduced to Sam's hookup, which is also going to become a more bigger complication. And you get introduced to just sort of this runner about the Cubans who are who are on their way. The only sort of story you don't, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, get introduced to in the first 10 pages is um, everyone's favourite West Wing character, Mandy. Um who who gets introduced, I think, a little bit later. And interestingly, all of her scenes seem quite notably different from the script to what's actually on the screen, which I'd be fascinated as to when that happened. But, yeah, like he, he fits in quite a lot and that's because he drops you in. Like you are dropped in mid-sentence basically and the reporter and Sam are, are sort of riffing with each other but Sam's distracted and you're kind of straight into it, which I loved at the time. You, you're both respected as an audience member and you're hooked because you want to know what the hell they're talking about. So it's sort of straight away you're in and you're, and you're paying attention. It's not passive TV. It's sit forward, catch every word. They will talk fast. You do need to concentrate. Probably don't, don't do it with with um, the ironing or sort of like over dinner, actually pay attention to it. What is the inciting incident of this episode? And or is there, can you not ask those kind of questions of this pilot? And like, what is the A story? What's the B plot? What's, what are your thoughts on that? I would say ultimately there's sort of two stories vying for like an A level in this episode, and that is the Josh and his job at risk, because that that will lead us to the big triumphant. This is Bartlett, you know, and he and he tells the sort of the the Christian right to kind of where to where to go at the end. Like that's all leading there. But you but within this episode, the sort of the inciting incident is, I guess, like the bike accident. Like that's the that's the nature of silken things. We go, oh, it's a bit weird. Sometimes inciting incidents really happen off screen with him. Um, and it's sort of the thing that kicks the story into gear. It's the thing we come in on. Oh, he's been in a bike accident. Um, you know, the, the sort of the other story vying is that Sam has hooked up with a woman who will turn out to be a call girl for a later payoff well down the track. But in terms of like an A story that has a beginning-ish, middle-ish, end-ish over the course of this episode, it feels like Josh and his bust up with um, Mary Marsh, I think it is, 
Um, and and sort of, but a lot of it, sort of the, the the president, his bike accident, and the way that will feed in, it's happening off camera, and we're not getting all the information. So, but but Keir, did was that your take on what the A story was? Yeah, pretty much. But I I similarly felt like what he did very cleverly was with uh, the Cuban storyline. So, and and it's kind of speaks to the themes of the entire. Sh- series of the West Wing, which is like these personal, small little issues that are going on every day in everyone's personal lives, and then these huge global events. So in tandem, you've got Josh worrying about him losing his job because he said something, you know, inflammatory in an interview. And then parallel to that is running this story of Cuban refugees trying to make it safely across the ocean uh, to the US. And the sort of the resolution to those two stories coincides when the president walks in and is like sort of the Josh storyline comes to nothing. He's like, Hey, just, you know, watch your mouth. Don't do it again. Um, because there are, um, because there are people losing their lives every day and there is serious shit going on in the world. And it ends the episode in this, like, fuck yeah, this president's great because he has his priorities sorted. He doesn't care that one of his senior staffers said something stupid on television. What he cares about is that people are dying trying to get safe passage to the United but States. it's interesting because it sort of it goes again to some choices in the setup of this show and the creation of this world of the amount of things that will happen off camera, like the sheer volume of things that are important within the story world but we don't see, which once again goes against the show don't tell thing. And you guys probably came across it in your sort of research as well. Like Sorkin got pushback. He got like, could Sam and Josh be waiting by the dock with rugs for the for the Cuban refugees? Kind of pushback on how to tell that story, which is an entirely <laughs> off-camera, emotional, important, but kind of theoretical story that we don't see. While we have, as you so rightly point out, like the really personalized stakes happening in an office um, on camera. And it's sort of it's it's amazing how he makes you invest in those things and draws them together, and it's without without showing you. It could have been an interesting opening scene to just be dropped in that um, that fiery exchange on the TV show to actually see the thing which causes the trouble. It is an interesting choice to start in the like the fallout, but it's not even laid out what the fallout is about right away. I think it's a pattern Sorkin does. He likes yeah. to give you almost half a sentence and then let you guess what the other half of the sentence, the first half of the sentence might be, and then he will tell you about three or four scenes later. Like he will, it's how he often does exposition as well. He kind of throws you in and then he has usually sometimes to her detriment Donna ask a really stupid, I just like to just hook you with like half morsels and then say, here's the information. And it's, it's a, it's a pattern he repeats like, through certainly all of the West Wing, um, which is a really just, a, I guess, a really interesting, clever um, shortcut to to make you go, what? And then stay in it. But it's, um, you're right, because it's a fiery, a fire exchange on TV is just as inciting and it's just, and it is arguably an inciting incident that they could have just come in on straight out of the gate. Well, what's really interesting about that suggestion, Dave, is from memory, that is how Newsroom begins. Uh the less successful of his two TV shows, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, it's Jeff Daniels on a stage saying something incredibly inflammatory, and then you're like into the fallout of that. Also, Studio Sixty, his other 
less right. successful. <laughs> I, I kind of secretly love Studio 60, but I'm aware that it's got problems. Studio 60 is probably my, one of my favourite hate watches of all time. Yeah. Um, it's just so, like, inexplicable and superb and and messy and awful and I'm sure has infuriated every comedian ever who's ever worked with <laughs> It's so earnest. <laughs> so earnest, so important, so inexplicably involves a soldier brother in Afghanistan. Um, it's just <laughs> That's right. Superb. They just, like, they go through this phase where they're going to solve terrorism and I'm like, you're a sketch show, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in the research for The West Wing, hearing about how Sorkin, you know, he had something like a 400-page script for the American President feature film. Yeah. Um, and then he turned that into a 120-page script. And so he had all of this leftover material and sometimes he would just go back and be like, oh, yeah, I'll grab that storyline, shove it in this episode. That's exactly what feels like happened on Studio 60. All of these weird West Wing leftover things that he never got to use. He was like, I'll put them in this show. And people are like, but this is a show about, like, Saturday Night Live. And he's like, yeah, 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 but it's fine. Like, they can deal with politics as well. And- <laughs> he even literally has Alison Janney as Alison Janney there at one point. Swing. She was just really funny off to the side. So we'll get her Brilliant. in an episode and we'll just have her be Alison Janney. Um, it's, it's, yeah, no, it's, it's a really strange watch. And I think Studio 60 is the thing you need to realise what a great writer's room Aaron Sorkin had on the West Wing. So why was he fired? Do we, do do you know much about that, Jess? I mean, I'm sure this has been well covered, but yeah, why did he leave at season five? It was, I mean, I think the real, I mean, aside from, you know, Okay, next scene being his method of writing, I believe um, it was a deadline issue. <laughs> right. He just never met deadlines, and that was costing a lot of money. And they were, and the conversation went, well, could you have it that you didn't write every episode? Maybe you just wrote like half the episodes in a season. And his argument was, it wouldn't be the same. That's that's not the show we're making. Um, and he, you know, he had had a, and I'm sure they still collaborate. Um, uh, Tommy Schlummy. Shlami, Shlami, the director, the sort of producer who's who's a director as well, who he worked with on West Wing, who walked away with him. Um, so obviously they both believed the kind the show they were making required Sorkin to be there for the whole thing. And Tommy Shlami is like the inventor of the walk and talk, which of course West Wing is is famous for bringing forth. It's interesting to think that wasn't in the script straight out the gate. That was a directorial choice. That that was his way of activating this, you know, this great Leo sequence where he walks into the White House and in those first 10 pages we kind of get the geography of the space on this amazing set that must have cost an absolute monster to make. Um, and we kind of get the feel, this kinetic flow, while we're just getting a very long spiel of dialogue. And it sort of makes you forget you're getting almost a soliloquy with the random interruption of, Occasional attractive female <laughs> assistants who are described that way. Yeah. Yes. As you said, there is some problematic stuff going on in the West Wing. Yeah. I don't know if you guys want to get into that yet or, <laughs> or not. Please. Oh, Go look, for it. Just in its, it's interesting reading the script and going, and because it's not in, you know, on the screen, but in the script, every woman under the age of 50 is described as pretty or attractive. Mm. I've got it. It's Donatella Moss, Josh's assistant, walks in the door behind Leo, 25 and sexy without trying to. <laughs> Donna, oh, they- Donna <laughs> is devoted to Josh. What a sentence. What a <laughs> testament to the actress that she really just 
found a way into that character and actually made her have a brain as well as being sexy without trying too hard. Yeah. I think it's uh, it, it is a trope, and it probably was at the time of the. Uh, Hot, but doesn't know it. I know. Lips lips to serve (laughs) Mandy Hampton, a fine-looking, instantly likeable woman in her mid to late 30s. CJ Craig, the pretty athletic jogger, um, when he reintroduces her on page 11, just after our first 10 pages. He, it's and I think it's also it's a sign of the times. It's it's that era where that wasn't questioned and that was how it was written. It's very male gazy. It's making it clear we don't want any ugly actresses in our lead roles on this TV show. Like there was ever any chance in hell of that happening anyway. But none of these descriptors are ever given to any of the male characters. Um, and if you, yeah, yeah. Have a, like I kind of was taken aback when I got when I, the Donna one, and that's why I went whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, and it's it's interesting. It's it's part of it's an era. It's a different time in script writing. You can't get away with that now. I like to think. I hope to think, but it does make me think in terms of characters and how you introduce them. You know, when you decide to describe their attractiveness, I like to think now there needs to be a story reason sure. that you're describing mm-hmm. their attractiveness. You know, that has to be central to why we're meeting this person or how people are going to react to them so that we understand it. And what what should go into those character one-liners that makes us understand them and how people are reacting to them and what tone they are is more important than, oh, my God, and, you know, the modelling contract is just finished, basically, unless it's Models, Inc., <laughs> in which case I understand Well, that's yeah, fantastic. It seems like it's just for NBC executives to kind of... Um, to read it and go, but why do I like this cat? Oh, wait, I see why I like them. It oh, says in the brackets here <laughs> that it's because they're attractive. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. And, of course, you do have other issues in that pilot script. There's, um, there is interesting, and some of the changes that happened were the character of Charlie is introduced in the script and Charlie is introduced in the second episode in the run of the show. Um, and Charlie in the second episode feels like a response to how white the cast is. Um, and that's actually kind of a casting choice necessarily. Like it's not necessarily in the script that everyone, it's just part of that, I guess, mm-hmm. baked-in assumption in casting. Um, and there is a really unfortunate homophobic sequence um, in a scene between, uh, this is not in the first 10 pages, um, just in a conversation that's just sort of the casual homophobic commentary of of Josh when he's having lunch with Mandy, which you just, you just like it, there's no way mm-hmm. that would make it to air now. Like it's sort of... But it's played, you know, obviously for laughs and stuff like that, and it's just supremely outdated. So those, I guess, were like the sort of problematic things. I was like, ah, oh, it'd be interesting to read. You know, a West Wing if it got made now, and you read this script, what would the cast look like for those first ten pages? Like just on a diversity level, as you're meeting them, um, and maybe even what the gender split would be would would mm-hmm. potentially be variable. It's really unusual for television and kind of theatrical. It sort of shows his playwright roots, as you as you said. It's also incredibly traditional in some of those choices and, and representative of sort of like a little time capsule of what network TV needed to be reassured that people would watch it, I guess. Mm. It is, mate, like you, if you look back on shows, um, popular shows of this era and earlier, just how, how, um, how much gay panic for laughs was utilised. Uh, it it crops up. Yeah. A lot. I was watching a lot of Friends during lockdown, and uh, that yeah, is Friends, rife Seinfeld, with Friends. in Scrubs. Gilmore Girls has a, a, an insane yeah. amount of 
fat shaming and slut shaming in it that you just you, we all we might have missed maybe in the nineties or, or we're less mm. sort of aware of or glossing over. But it's yeah, something's just it's it's uh, it's uncomfortable retrospectively what what people used to think was funny, mm. especially. Well, let's move on to the next 10. Usually we do the next 10 pages of the screenplay, but for West Wing, because there's 155 episodes to choose from, what would be the next episode you suggest uh, a a reader or viewer uh, watch or read? I mean, I... (sighs) That's that's a, that's a real tough question off the top, off the top of my head. I could <laughs> just give yeah. it a Sophie's I mean, there's, choice. There's a fantastic episode where, and I can't remember which season, it's one of the early seasons, it might be the second, it might be the first, where Toby's jacket is found on a dead homeless man. Um, and that is sort of, I think that was the one that that actor, um, Richard Schiff, won an Emmy for, that performance. Um, and... It's it's a beautifully written episode. It's also in part of that sort of trivia behind the scenesness. I'm pretty sure that's the episode which Sorkin won a writing Emmy with, but he got it as a co-write with another writer, and he famously hated sharing the credit because his argument was that he wrote it. Um, and so there's like this real behind the scenes shenanigans over that Emmy win, and he went on to do some kind of gross revenge stuff in Studio 60 where he made a real dickhead writer character share the same first name as as that writer. Um, but it's... it's oh, so it's spiteful. That's Studio so 60 gross. Is, is like um, revenge porn without the porn, um, basically. Every character in there has a, has a real-life reference point and they're all, they've all done Sorkin wrong a little bit um, as far as he's concerned. But, look, it's, it's a really... It's interesting because you've got to think of it in terms of obviously the first four seasons, I think, and I think Sorkin's right, the second season is actually where the show hits its straps in terms of arc, long arc plotting. Um, they find there's a great episode called 17 People on the fact that the president has MS and has hidden it. Um, spoiler. Um, and and while that's happening, everyone else is trying to punch up a speech and make it funny in the other room. And it's sort of just two storylines running in parallel and you're jumping between them. And that is that is a kickoff of a sensational, like, television arc. So it's not about that sort of one episodic show that, you know, it tells a great complete story. It's an arc towards this president coming towards telling his truth, tell, well, his truth, ew, telling the truth about what he has hidden and dealing with the consequences of that. So I think that kind of the the run at the end of season two is pretty spectacular both as individual episodes and as as an arc. And that's sort of, you know, serialised storytelling, that's what you look for, not just necessarily the individual episodes but a run of episodes that really, um, I think, suck you in. And I think that extra bit of trivia, uh, I'm pretty sure that was a result of the actress who played Mrs Landingham mentioned she might need to... She was going for another job. She might have another job. And so we went, oh, I guess we can kill that that character then. Um, and they do at the end of that season and it's got this huge emotional punch um, because you spent two seasons with these characters. So it's, you know, they've, they've, they've built up these characters over this time and then you know you trust and love President Bartlett, but he has, you know, taken part in essentially a betrayal of the electorate. You're watching that unfold and you've got, like, the real-world analogies around presidents who have withheld information or been found out and, you know, that's through history. Um, but you also have this sort of personal stories of grief going on. And, and so, yeah, that, that run at the end of the second season is particularly strong. I still get hooked in in the last episode. Is it The Shadow of Two Gunmen? 
of first season, or that might be the first episode of the second season where there's a shooting. He, they do good end of season cliffies on this show, um, where for a show that's not action heavy, they they yeah. rationalise and justify going to a place of actually death and shooting, and it's really earned at the end of each season. It's this valve release of like old fashioned television action in a lot of ways, um, which is which is thrilling because you've you've spent twenty two episodes of people sitting in rooms talking. Um, so that was a really non-specific answer by me to your question. <laughs> the the answer is all of them. But an appropriate answer considering the subject <laughs> uh, and how much there is. What about you, Kia? Uh, well, controversially, not from the first uh, four or five seasons, but one that just always sticks in my mind of, of, of just kind of um, innovation is the debate episode between Alan Alder and Jimmy Schmidt's uh, because they actually performed it and aired it live as a live debate between these two potential presidential wow. candidates. So it went to air live and it was performed like a play on the night and it had all the feeling of when you tune in for a um, political debate and it was just, yeah, I was like, that is incredible that they pulled that off. Incredible, but rewatchable, question mark? Yeah. Look, I don't know. It was just as a feat, as a creative exercise. I was like, that's an awesome. performance-wise insane and fascinating that it took a non-Sorkin showrunner to do the most playwright theatrical version episode of the show possible. You know, two men on yeah. a stage. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if we're, if, we're, if we're opening up to the last couple of seasons, I've got to throw in the Supremes for just aspirational television, where they Glenn Close becomes the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of America. That's yes. Very good. Oh, this is all just making me want to go back and watch it, watch it all over again. And you've just pointed out that, that, that something that's become, become lost to time is the uh, the live episode. Yeah. That was a a, main, a live episode in the uh, clip show. Both uh, uh, Community, I think, <laughs> took the clip show to its meta extreme by creating a clip show with all new original clips, and yeah. that undid that. Yeah. But there was that sort of 30 Rock <laughs> did a live show. They did a live show, yeah. That's the one who, I was thinking. Who and they did. They had a lot of fun with it. Clearly, with the sort of casting for the flashes because of the format, like that was the thing. Yeah. But I'm trying to think of the last live. It's a really, it's a high risk thing to do in in this day. And- <laughs> totally. Uh, well, Jess, we're just about at the end. Uh, but to wrap up, what are you watching at the moment? What are you? Uh, what are you oh, watching? It's like from reading? rewatching The West Wing, which I did for this. <laughs> All of it, just in preparation and to wherever, wherever the conversation roamed. And trying, and trying to track down Studio 60 to rewatch because that just... <laughs> Has it just um, been wiped from the internet? Yes. Genuinely, mm. I can't find it anywhere in Australia. I, oh. I, I, feel like, I feel like someone has got it in a vault wow. somewhere in Australia, the rights to it. I couldn't, couldn't track it down, but I've got a DVD somewhere. Aaron, I just need to. What am I watching? I have been. It's it's because it's been a it's been a minute. The last year or so of, of viewing, I've sort of been kind of deep diving into things I didn't watch when they first came out. I've just been finishing up the first season of The Nick, which was a. You are ju- uh, That's what I'm watching. Get out! <laughs> I was like, no, she's not going to say The Nick. <laughs> yeah, I just came across it on uh, on binge and and thought I watched half of the first episode a couple wow. of years ago, and. Um, it was quite an interesting world. 
Uh, so I've gone back to it. Yeah. What do you make Super of it? Super interesting. Dark, darker, probably right up to the line, a little bit over the line of in terms of darkness for what my sense of Very grim, yeah. yeah. Very grim. And unrelenting. Ah, oh, and and rich story world. Are you familiar with it, Kira, at all? No, I remember when it came out, but I've never watched it. Yeah, so it's set in a in a hospital, turn of the century in New York, in America. Clive Owen as a cocaine adult surgeon at the forefront of what surgery could be, basically inventing sort of techniques mm. while also Surgical trying to hide advances. his addiction and a whole heap of other sort of. It's, it's that hospital. It's interesting because it's sort of. In many respects, it's a hospital show, but it's, you know, it could, on paper, if you listed it out, be a hospital show, like a Grey's or a, you know, mm-hmm. ER. It is, you know, it's got cases of the week and it's got running relationship things, but it's, it, you have to, you'd have to stand back to see that shape because it's, it feels, it's, well, it's, is it HBO? I believe it was Showtime. Ah, no, so it's it a Cinemax like- original, whatever that means. Yeah, it's it's very dark. It's very much. Um, it feels like the sort of riding the like the the tail waves of the anti-hero push that we had with Clive Owen as as an often incredibly difficult to to like character, um, but just such a rich world. Just super dark. Very dark. Very Steven <laughs> Soderbergh. Check it out. Shaky camera, um, handhelds. Yeah, but very very interesting and just the most. Whoever was is uh, in was in charge of the 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 production design. God, there's some grisly <laughs> surgical props. Oh, every now and then, I go, are they gonna? Oh no, they're yeah. showing us. Oh god, no, I don't. I didn't want that. <laughs> I've been watching. Yeah, <laughs> I can't see that. I had to say, this isn't real. This isn't real. This isn't real. Uh, <laughs> um, but just to counter that, like I've been sort of you know enjoying uh, kind of. Uh, I am like I'm a basic bitch at times, so I do get into my MCU. So the sort of the MCU TV shows have been interesting to watch that as like an extension of a cinematic universe, like WandaVision and, and Falcon and the Winter Soldier have also been interesting little and totally very different to the Nick to kind of dive into as mm. well. And what about work wise? Work wise, uh, well, I have been in development sort of I've written an episode for a, a show that's been in development with um Jungle and Foxtel for a while so waiting hopefully for some positive news there um I have uh, another project that's been optioned by um Kojo and Stampede uh which is an American company and uh I've been doing a lot of work I with script editing and I, I recently sort of worked on a a show that's going to come out on SBS as a digital original called Iggy and Ace, um, which was with a couple of young creators. It was just a lot of fun to work on and they've just finished shooting in WA and, and that will hopefully come out, um, I think, in the back half of, of this year. Um, and, and yeah, still sort of writing for for Neighbours as well. So, yeah, so it's right. it's fun. Lots, uh, lots of variation. The freelance writer life in Australia. You, the exactly. endless hustle. The hustle. Yeah, that's it. You, you said to me uh, recently over brunch, Jess, something that blew my mind, uh, and it was that you enjoyed writing. Like, not being a writer, but you enjoy the act of sitting down to write, and um, <laughs> that just 
blew my mind. And I think it um, it shows in everything of yours that I've ever read that this is someone who loves what they do. There's a lot of joy. I never realised that was a controversial statement at all. Have you not listened to the tens of, of writing interviews with all the greats who are like, oh, it's agony, like it's the worst. I would do anything else if I could, but, I, you know, you just have to push through it and get it done. You're one of the very few I've met who gets great joy out of the act of writing. So very envious, but um, yeah, as I said, it shows in the work. Well, it's it's a happy place to be. You know, I think it, sort of in terms of careers, you, you've just, you've won the lottery if any part of what you do brings you joy and you get to pay the rent doing it. So, you know, even no matter sort of the scale or the type of the task or the writing, I'm constantly reminding myself how lucky I am mm. to make a living doing this job, this thing that honestly at 17 I did not think could be a career, That I, so much so that I went into journalism. So it feels like a perpetual long-running lottery win that I, I get to keep doing it. You're, so, you're so well, right. Yeah. Congratulations so on right. your win, Jess. And thank you so much for joining the show. Uh, it's been a great privilege and uh, lots of fun. Lots of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Thanks, Jess. Kia, thank you as always. Thank you, Dave. See you next time. Fade to black, the end.